All right. So we're going to attempt to answer the question today, what does the Lord require of you? And so usually when I teach, um, I do like to often provide a little bit of a, a little bit of context. That's how I learn. That's how I appreciate um, learning. And so I'm going to teach that way uh, to you guys this morning. And so we're going to spend just a couple minutes and we're going to look at Micah and try to understand a little bit about what was going on at the time that Micah was prophesying. So, he spoke in the 8th century B.C. Um, primarily it was um, between about 750 B.C. and 686, which is exactly 100 years prior to the exile of Judah, where the Babylonians came in and took them. It was, about, it was at that time that the Assyrians were continuing to gain ground on the map of the world. They were, if you remember, the Assyrians came in well before and they took the ten tribes um, the ten northern tribes took them into captivity due to their, due to their sin. And we're going to kind of look at that today because um, I believe that what Israel and Judah were struggling with almost 28 centuries ago are some of the same exact things that we're still struggling with today. And so his message is very relevant to us. So who are some contemporaries of Micah? So if you're looking in the Old Testament and you're doing some reading and doing some studying you're going to recognize that there were four other prophets, four other books that have been written, that were written about the same time that Micah was sharing his message. A couple of them were in uh, the northern tribes. So if you read the book of Amos and Hosea, right? He was, they were prophesying in, the, up in what was um, where Samaria was at, up there in that, the northern ten tribes. We've all read Isaiah as you know, a, a large book in the Old Testament, but... We don't know, and Isaiah and Micah may have known one another. They were both prophesying at almost the exact same time, under the same kings, in the same general area. And then, you know, I mentioned Jonah, right? And so Jonah is prophesying over in, in Nineveh. And so what did he have to say? So quickly, four things, right? He was going to warn the northern and the southern kingdoms of this impending judgment. He was going to confirm for Judah why they thought they were so much better off than Israel, because Israel was taken over by the Assyrians, and so they still had their little world for about 150 years, and they thought, well, hey, all's good with us. So it's ten northern tribes that that left. They're the ones who are they're the ones who are sinful. They're the ones who God is judging. And Michael was here to say, no, that's not how that works. He also wanted to emphasize that God's justice and love. Um, in the disciplining of the nation, right? We don't like to be disciplined. It's uncomfortable. I don't like it any more than any of you do. But it was an attempt of God's love to help them to reconcile. And then lastly, he wanted to, to present God as the sovereign Lord of the earth who is in control of everything, despite what we might think on a day-to-day -day basis. So real quick at the land, right? And so you can't really see it, it doesn't really matter, but um, the dark green up there is, is the amount of land that the Assyrians controlled just prior to those five prophets in their, in their prophesied. And by the time Micah was done with his, with his book and his letter and his message and those other four, the Assyrians controlled everything in that light green as well. And I remember uh, Aaron Nelson a couple years ago was talking as he, as he brought the message to us and talking about the book of Jonah and he talked about the Assyrians and how ruthless they were. They were a ruthless nation. They took no prisoners. They didn't ask questions. They showed no mercy. 
And so Micah is here and he's trying to warn the people of Judah, which if you see there in that little speck of yellow, that's all the territory was left. And they thought, you know what, we're good. We might be surrounded, but we're protected because God's with us and we can continue doing what we're doing. All's well. But in fact, that was not the case. So, first, first verse of Micah, right? It says, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. The vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So that's important, that very first verse of the book. Why? Because Micah announces himself as being from Morsheth. He was an outsider. He was not from Samaria or from Jerusalem. Morsheth was an area that was about 50 miles to the southwest of Jerusalem. So as he's sharing his message, right, the people that are in Jerusalem or would have been in Samaria would have looked at him as someone who was a minority, someone who was outside of the establishment. So they probably, I can imagine, didn't take too kindly to what his message was going to be. But he says it's concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So, again, equal opportunity. You're all doing it. What are we going to do about it? So, what was Micah's message? Why did he have such a strong message? So, we're going to start off with this first, um, with this, with this first message. So, skip down with me to verse 5. Verses 5 through 7 of Micah 1. All this is because of Jacob's transgression. Because of the sins of the people of Israel. And what is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? Was it not Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap of rubble. A place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley. I will lay her foundations bare. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes... As the wages of prostitutes, they will be used again. So, message number one, and in your in your bulletin handout, I created a little outline. You can kind of fill it in. The theme of chapter number one was idolatry. Right? Those living in Judah were obsessed with idolatry. And he uses that strong language in the seventh verse, talking about gathering the wages from prostitutes. For a couple reasons, right? And this idea of, of prostitution or this idea of idolatry. The word actually um, in verse 5, what was Jacob's transgression? Transgression is better translated, what was their apostasy? They were filled with idol worship. Samaria and Jerusalem were nothing. The temple, the temples that they had built were full of idol worship. They were obsessed with wealth and they were obsessed with sex. And he's saying, look... That's how you gained. That's how you've gotten your gains. That's how you have accumulated that wealth. That's what you think is important. I'm going to turn it into a heap of rubble because I'm not putting up with it. And so I think about us today then, right? So that was what was going on there. And you're asking, well, Isaac, what does that have to do with us now? So let's, let's ponder this a minute. We'll talk about it in your life groups a little bit, right? Timothy Keller wrote, the greatest danger is not that we Christians become atheists, right? I don't think any of us are going to turn around and do that today, but that we ask God to coexist with idols in our hearts. And so unfortunately, we see a little bit too much of this today here in the 21st century America. Right? We've not necessarily 
actively and definitively rejected the God of the Scriptures, the God of Micah. But however, we have probably deliberately and consciously added other objects of worship to our worship of Him. And so this is what the Bible calls idolatry, or what Micah called adultery. We're essentially saying to God, right, we want to enjoy all the benefits of knowing and being loved by you. And we do love you. We do love God. But we also want to be free to worship other things because they make us happy. So ask yourself this. What am I being influenced by? What do I meditate on? What do I think about? I will, I will argue, probably pretty vehemently, that all of us, are attached to one of those idols that I just pulled up there on the screen in some way or a fashion, right? Maybe we're not fascists or socialists, right? How many of you, show of hands, how many of you were disappointed in, in the returns in your 401k or your retirement accounts last year? Anybody? Why not? They were great. Why were they great? Why? Primarily, why were they great? Because we live in a capitalist society, right? We're kind of the engine that chugs. Most everything else gets a go. Our humanism. You know people who love the reason and science of it. We can prove it. Right? Working at Eli Lilly and the desire to make medicines to help people, it's fantastic. However, right, if that is what is most important, that it's the science that's going to prove it out, and it's not God, you know, we're making an idol of that. The last one is a tough one, especially for those of us here in the West, individualism, right? We're going to make an idol out of our individual freedom, our desire to develop our own identity and security. We're an independent people, right? Or traditionalism, right? Our feasts, our getting together at Christmas or any other holidays or get-togethers, right? We have to do it because that's a tradition, right? And we make that the most important thing. James, I'll flip over here real quick. In James 4, right, he warns us, James 4, verses 4 through 8, says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for a spirit that has caused to dwell in us? But he says, but he gives us more grace. That is why the Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. He says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God, right? Submit and come near. Those are actions, right? That's what we have to do to get out this, get out that attachment to those idols. Okay, going to move on to theme number two. Look with me to the very beginning of chapter two. Verses one and two. Woe to those who plan iniquity to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, their houses, and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. Now, why do you think, in verse 1, it says, at morning's light? Why at morning's light? It's because system that had been set up, the laws that governed that time, allowed them to take and allowed them to be oppressive through completely legal means. 
They didn't have to hide. They didn't have to do it at night. Under the cover of darkness, they didn't have to come in. Do it broad daylight. Right? Because this is how it's going to be. And so they could, they were plotting that evil. And it was in their power to do it, to covet those fields and to say, you know what, I want that. And so I'm going to set up a structure such that I can, that I can make sure that I can manipulate the system so that I can take over. So his message in chapter 2 was primarily to those, right, who have the advantage. People like you and I. You ever considered the fact that some of our possessions often come, often come at the expense of those who lack the advantages that we have? How often do we think about that? But yet Micah was sharing exactly that. He was trying to warn them. You have to think about these things and you have to take action. You can't be idle. So let's consider some current forms of oppression that we see in our world today. Ideological oppression, right? The idea that one group is somehow better than another. We see how our country is right now as divided as ever. And it doesn't matter what group you think you're in, right? You believe that you've got the right answer and the other group doesn't have any idea what's going on. Or other people. The institutional oppression that occurs. That one group is better than another group and has the right to control another group. Right? This idea, right, in the West, right, for the most part, we as majority members, and I'm talking to people who are white, right, we have controlled the narrative now for nearly 500 years. Right? And so we don't think about that on a day-to-day -day basis, that we can go about our business and do whatever we want to do, and we don't recognize that there, there are millions of other people who don't have those same advantages, they don't have that same access. And they struggle because of the systems that have been put in place. The interpersonal oppression that exists where group members, you have clubs and stuff like that, and, and we exert our control and our dominance. Or the idea of internalized uh, oppression. The idea of inferiority, where we put people down. We cut people down, we continue to tell them they're no good. We bully kids at school. Or we do things at work that causes people to then become and believe those negative message and messages and connotations about them. And Mike is saying, look, and it, and it was all completely legal. None of these things that I'm mentioning up here, those forms of oppression, none of them are illegal. They're done in broad daylight. And so I ask you, while we might not outwardly show those signs of oppressing others, do we do it in our hearts? So what kind of fruit are we producing? Right? I might not outwardly go out and behave that way, but what kind of fruit am I producing? Is it what exemplifies Christ and is good, or is it what is not and is bad? Last one. Look with me to chapter 3. Micah says, in verse, chapter 3, verse 1. Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice? Right? He spent two chapters calling them out. And he's saying to all those who are in power, you are the ones who have been assigned to act justly and to be compassionate and merciful, especially for the people who have been oppressed and marginalized. Right? That's what he's calling them out. And so he even goes so far as to then say, look, 
You're acting like those Assyrians. Those ruthless people that you cannot stand, who are oppressing you, who are, are, are putting all this pressure on you, you're acting just like them. And he gives them a very specific wording in verses 2 and 3. He says, you who hate good and love evil, you who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat in a pan, like flesh for the pot. You're acting that same way. And so I ask us, right? Are we doing that same thing? Are, are, we, are, are we abusing our power, right? We have many people in here who are in positions of power, who are, are in positions of authority, whether you're a parent, a grandparent, teachers, managers, team leaders, what have you. Doctors, right? Lawyers. We're all in different positions of authority in different places. So what are we doing to ensure that we're not acting just like the people or just like the other groups that we that we see on a common basis who seem who, who are behaving in a way that does not exemplify Christ. Are we doing that? That's what Micah's message is. He's asking these questions and calling them out. One last question. So in Nebuchadnezzar a hundred years later when he exiled Judah, when you read in the, in, in the book of uh, in, in the books of Jeremiah, you see it in Daniel. When Nebuchadnezzar exiles Judah, did he take only those who are abusing their power or oppressing the poor? Did he only take those who were widowed? Who did he take? He took nearly everybody. Right? He didn't take those who were only the most egregious you know, violators of the law that God had. He took them all. Nearly everybody. Right? And so while you may be sitting there, or I can be standing up here and saying, well, I'm not doing that. You know, I, I don't, I'm not actively worshiping idols, making sure I'm staying in touch. I'm not abusing my power. I'm not oppressing anybody. What did matter? Right? Because by our silence, by not doing anything about it, right, we're just as guilty as the people who are doing something about it. Right? He took them all. So, back to our original question again. What does the Lord require of us? Flip with me to Micah chapter 6. We'll start off with verses 6 and 7, and then we're going to flip over to Amos, who also had a message for us. Verse 6, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? There's that word again. The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Amos, over in, in chapter 5, I'll turn there and just listen to him for a second. Amos says, this is God speaking. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never failing stream. He's saying the same thing in a different area of the country. And so I look at this first part of 
Verse 8, right? He has shown you a mortal what is good and what does the Lord require of you. And the word required is key. Is he asking us? Is the word right? The word required, is, 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 that a, is that an ask? Is that optional? No. What does it require of us? It requires something from us. It's to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Right? We just read how he hates that religious practice of sacrifice that doesn't come with this part of pursuing justice. Why? Because religion and sacrifice without justice does not come from a position of love or kindness or humility. It goes back to that individualism. It goes back to that traditionalism. We're just doing it because that's what we're supposed to do. How many of you came here this morning? Because it's Sunday morning. That's what you do. Injustice and inequality exists where love and kindness and humility are not actively demonstrated in practice. And all too often, as we go through our lives in a very transactional way, we calculate the cost to us and decide, is it worth the effort or not to act justly or love mercy or walk humbly? Do we manipulate our financial power, our professional status, our position, our relationships, personal gain? Right? That's telling us this is what we have to do. So, let's look at this first part of it. Act justly. What is that? We have to remember, guys, we're all God's children. All of us. Doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. Doesn't matter what color your skin is. Doesn't matter what, um, what religion, what socioeconomic class we're from. We are all God's children. We're all in this boat together called humanity. We have, to, we have to be more aware of that and recognize that just because somebody doesn't have the same maybe political beliefs that I do, they don't carry themselves the same way that, that you do, that they're still God's children. He still loves them just as much as he loves you and me. We have to recognize that social systems are not always equitable. That's hard, again, for majority members to go through our life when we don't give two seconds thought as we go through our day. There are millions of people who do not look like you, talk like you, who do not have those same privileges and that same access, and it's only because they might have been born in a different country or the color of their skin is different. And we have to recognize that. When was the last time you thought about that as you got up and went to work for a day or went through your week? <coughs> Going back to Amos chapter 5, I love... Um, the New Living Testament version of that verse that I read a minute ago. It says, instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice. I want to see, this is God, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. On the other side of your, your bulletin handout, A.W. Tozer, the, I put a couple quotes on there, but I'm going to read the one in the middle. Talking about God. Tozer says, he has always dealt in mercy with mankind and will always deal in justice when mercy is despised. If we could remember that the divine mercy is not a temporary mood, but an attribute of God's eternal being, we would no longer fear that it someday will cease to be. Right? This idea that we think we have to take matters into our own hands or that somebody else, that we need to keep score because we're being oppressed. 
or somebody did us wrong, oh, God's keeping track. Rest assured. You see in Matthew 7, 12, right? Golden rule, right? So do whatever you wish others would do to you, do to them, for this is the law of the prophets. We, we love the grace, we love the mercy, we love when people take care and treat us well. But are we extending that same love and mercy and justice to others? So how do we love mercy? Galatians 6.1 tells us, Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, there's that word again, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. We have to remember and understand that loving mercy is a sacrifice. That is not, it's not easy. I will be first to admit it is not easy to do. It's hard when you're having a bad day or things are not going well at work or wherever to continue to love, to not retaliate, to be quick to forgive, to reach out to the lonely, the neglected, those who are addicted. <coughs> What about walking humbly? That's about our attitude. Right? Again, having that value and respect for all people. But realizing that we are stewards and not owners. You think about the possessions that we have and we tend to hold on to them tightly. right? Because we believe that we own them. We worked hard for it. And so it's mine. Well, not really. It's not really ours. We're stewards of it. Think about the Lord in Philipp or Paul talking in Philippians 2. Right? Doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, valuing others above ourselves. Not looking to our own interests, but to each of you to the interest of others. Right? And having that mindset that that it is not about me, it is about others, and walking in that humility. Romans 12.3 tells us, for by, for by grace given to me, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. That's walking humbly. It's understanding the word, that having that attitude and that position of, <coughs> I am not the Lord of my own life. I'm going to walk with others. I'm going to be humble. Now, you could pick this apart and you can look at this verse a couple different ways. I'm choosing to look at it this way. How many of you know people who act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly who are not believers? Right? I know a lot of them. But I think in order for us to leave a legacy and leave an example that Christ taught us and that Micah intended it's that we do it with God I know a lot, like, I, I know a lot of people who, walk, who are very humble they don't believe in God at all right? they don't love mercy but they do it they do it well but we have to do it I believe with God the 23rd Psalm right even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Right? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Right? We have to do it with God. 
All right. So here's why I like audience participation. I need, I need three volunteers. I need three volunteers who can read a verse loud so everybody can hear it. Jen, can you read? I want Genesis 32, 28. Somebody else? I need Job 13, 3 read. All right? I need one more. 2 Samuel 23, 5. Stand up, read it out loud so everybody can hear it. Go ahead. All right, Genesis 32, 28. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and fought with God and with men and have won. Okay. <clears throat> so what'd she say? What did what? Fought, struggled. Some of your translations might be struggled with God. Right? Was it was it struggled or fought against? No, it was with God, right? I'm doing it with God. I might have to struggle, I might have to fight, however the translation is, but I'm doing it with God. Not against Him, not trying to circumvent Him. I'm doing it with God. Okay, read Job for me. For thy desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. Alright, now I'm going to argue with Him, right? It's not argue against Him, not talk bad about Him, but I'm going to argue my case with God. Lastly. 2 Samuel 23.5? Yes. Is not my house right with God? Has he not made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part? Will he not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire? Those words... <clears throat> That were just read were the last words of David. What's he start off saying? If my house were not right with God, right? surely he would not have done this. We think about the life of David. Dan's been speaking about it for many weeks now. We've been going through that and learning about David. So I'm skipping forward to the end, and David says, If my house were not right with God. Matthew 19, 26, Jesus tells us. And he looks at his disciples and he said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Right? So, what does all this have to do with us in 2020? Why should I give two hoots about what Micah said a long time ago? Why should I care? <clears throat> Acts 17.31 tells us, right? For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. We know that to be his only son. He's given us proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So I think about this. Um, I often teach uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People at, at Lilly. And in the first day... We go, I take them through this exercise, I take everybody through this exercise as the students are developing your mission statement. Because most people, for the, for the most part, haven't sat down and spent time thinking about why am I here and what legacy do I want to leave? And so we spend several hours doing this. And I have people pretend that, um, and for some of you, you're beyond this, but I'm going to use the example anyway. I have my students pretend that you're sitting at your 80th birthday party. 
and you have all of the people who have influenced you, who have loved you, whether it's family, friends, even if it's people you've never actually met, they're around your table, at your house, celebrating your birthday with And I have you go through this exercise in order to project what do you want them saying about you? Right? Because we have this role to play. So I don't care how old you are. I don't care if you're the oldest person in this room or the youngest. We have different roles that we're playing. And so I give them an example, right? And I'll say, okay, you know, I'm a husband to Carrie. Right? I'm a father to my children. I'm a brother, a coach, maybe team leader, manager, right? Mission leader. Right? I do those different things. Those are the different roles that I play. But all of you have a role. Right? And so the reason it matters to us is, is because one day he's going to judge that. In 1 Corinthians 3, it tells us if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved, even though as only one escaping through the flames. I don't know about you, but I'm not looking to get to heaven and by the skin of my teeth. But that very clearly tells me that whatever I'm doing here, whatever role I have, is going to be tested. Because we're going to stand before Almighty God. We're not going to have our friends standing there with us. We're not going to have our family standing there with us. We're going to stand there by ourselves. And He's going to test what we're doing. And I have no doubts that some of what He's looking at is, are we acting justly? Are we loving mercy? Are we walking humbly? Are we doing those things? Because He wouldn't have put it in there as a requirement if it was an ask, if it was optional. He's going to test him. Now I believe that that means we're not necessarily going to lose our salvation if we haven't done those things. We'll get there, but barely. Or we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due for us, the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. All those things that are done or not done. If it's our silence, if it's our actions. So I ask us, will what we're doing stand up to that fire? Because what we do and the role we have today, it does matter. What you do today does matter. And so it's not just this old story. Right? We love grace. Right? We love when it's given to us. We love mercy when it's given to us. But grace and mercy without action on our part is nothing more than cheap grace, right? And cheap grace is something that we accept freely, right? Without an acknowledgement that it cost God everything. Absolutely everything. And so for us to think, well, I'm saved, I can just kind of go about my way, live in my own little world with my own little people. And I don't have to do something about it. Just cheap grace. And that's no way to live. Right? James tells us that faith without works right, is 
dead. Right? We're not going to earn our way to heaven. We're not going to work our way to heaven. The dogma on it, it requires us to do something. And regardless of what that is, and sometimes, depending on where you're at in life, right, it might be just writing a check to missions or church or helping others. That may be what it, that's maybe what it is. But for those of us that can do other things, whether it's teaching or mentoring or discipleship or going on trips or doing something, do it. Because it's going to be judged, right? It's going to go through the fire. Fire is used to destroy or refine, one of those two things. Kind of buy in there.
Are we walking humbly with you, or are we walking humbly against you? Father, lead us now. Hold us and shape us. We thank you.